everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, a weekly half hour of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Svela. I live here in Joshua Tree, and I'm pleased to bring this program to the high desert and beyond here on Radio Free Joshua Tree. Now, you may think that I call this program Myth in the Mojave because I'm a mythologist doing myth work in the Mojave Desert. And that's true. But the real point is that the desert herself is an important partner in my work and in my life. Human beings have a long, rich mythological relationship with the desert. And for reasons that I can't explain, this landscape evokes something that feels essential to me. I know that I'm not alone in this, so when I meet someone who taps into the desert's mythic quality, I have to share that discovery. My guest today is one of those special people, poet Cynthia Anderson. Cynthia lives here in the high desert with her photographer husband, Bill Dahl, who also has a very keen eye for the desert. And they have collaborated on two books, Shared Visions and Shared Visions 2. Cynthia has two books of desert poetry, In the Mojave, and her latest, Desert Dweller, and she is also the co-editor of an anthology titled A Bird as Black as the Sun, California Poets on Crows and Ravens. I'm really pleased that you could join me today, Cynthia, to talk a little bit about the desert, your life as a poet, and to read some of the poems from Desert Dweller. Thanks, Catherine. Really happy to be here. So... Maybe we could start off with um, with one of the poems from Desert Dweller. Sure. Um, this one is uh, called The Transverse Ranges, and it's a little capsule history of my life in California. Um, I grew up on the East Coast and moved to California in 1977. And since then, I've ha- it just so happens I've spent that entire time uh, living at some place along the transverse ranges, which are the east-west mountains that terminate out here in Joshua Tree National Park at the Pinto Basin, and the other, the west end, is out at Point Conception. Um, so, the transverse ranges. I spent half my life on the transverse ranges, those crosswise ribs of California, a rapture, a kind of Eden, whose mountains and valleys thrust from the earth's crust, still quake from the force of that birth. I began in the west, in sight of the sea, and later swung east on the pendulum of familiarity, landing in the Mojave, like the Shemawevi carried by coyote from ocean mother to back of beyond, in a basket, shaken out, empty. I live among rocks, whose faces shift as I look at them, leaping spirits of lizards, insistent spirits of mice, weathered junipers who have seen everything twice, who await the next sea change. Whatever transpires, you'll find me here, down a desert road of old and honest dirt. I love that ending. I do live on a dirt road. Yeah, as many of us do out here. You have such a wonderful way of evoking the presences in the desert. And I'm just wondering how it is that you ended up here. I mean, a lot of people who live in Santa Barbara wouldn't imagine living in the desert. Right. I did move here from Santa Barbara, but Bill and I had been coming out to the desert starting in the late 1990s. So really, 
our dream had been to retire to the desert and we that was a much anticipated dream and we did move out here in 2008 so yeah and i guess you know i can probably point to some family influence my father's side of the family uh were desert people and so i got you know maybe a predilection for the desert from some genetic mm-hmm. force mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. did you have any specific moment of calling well um we had originally planned to move to the low desert and came up here just on a whim to the high desert and uh, really thought, wow, this is a great place. We really like the people and the environment, um, the slower pace, you know, the wide open spaces, and we think this could work for us. Uh, so we did move here and rented a place to, you know, check it out and find out if we really did like it. We were still kind of wavering about whether we could stay here or not, and we're having trouble finding a house to buy and weren't sure what was going to happen. And at that point, um, I had a kind of a a mythic interlude uh, with desert animals. Um, you know, on this crux of this decision was coming up, and we needed to decide what we were going to do. And um, at that point, though I'd been spending quite a bit of time in the outdoors, suddenly the animals really seemed to... Um, be showing themselves to me in extraordinary ways. I mean, confronting me and, you know, spending time with me. And, uh, you know, I had the feeling like they were asking for something from me. And I interpreted that as being, you know, I could write about these animals. Mm-hmm. And that would um, be part of my quote-unquote desert word walk. That's a phrase that Ruth Nolan uses to describe the path of us writers in the desert. But, um, and that really set me on a certain path mm-hmm. um, for relating to the desert even more deeply. Uh, so uh, since that time, you know, I've written a great many poems about animals I've, of all types. One? And I, do, I did bring one. This is uh, one I was just started yesterday, so it's very new and it might change some more. But this is about one of my animal friends, a hummingbird, who I know pretty well. You know, this is one of those things where, you know, certain animals make your life worth living and worth getting up in the morning. (laughs) I know you've talked to me about that. And this hummingbird is one of those. And so I've written about this particular bird several times. And this is a new a new poem. It's called Questions in Spring. There's a buzz in my stomach, exactly like the whir of a hummingbird, the one who follows me around the yard who drops and waits at face level even when I'm inside. I don't notice the nest until she shows me, hidden in a juniper, gray as the branch it's attached to, wrapped in spider webs. She lets me watch her incubate, later hovers when I spy two tiny beaks pointing straight up like thumbtacks, ready for nectar and insects, riding the wind in that miniature basket, safe as Moses in the bulrushes. When the time of nurturing passes, will these new lives remember the tree and return? And will I be their witness? Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. Hummingbirds are one of the great surprises of the desert, aren't they? Oh, they are. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I love them so. Before I lived here, I had no idea that there were so many. Mm-hmm. Or that they were so interactive. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, this one we have we have a little thing we do with the hose, you know, where she gets a bath and uh-huh. things things like that. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's great. Now, have you always turned to the natural world for your inspiration? Well, yes, I have, you know, but because I lived for so long in the city, you know, that was kind of restricted. Really, um, in the 80s and 90s, I spent a lot of time writing about the dream world, and and, uh, a lot of my poems were sort of like taking dictation from dreams. And over time, what happened was I uh, really started dwelling, drawing more and more um, from my surroundings. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that was a good thing. You can only spend so much time in in the dream world, and then you have to come back. And (laughs) and, uh, the landscape grounded me. And uh, also gave me uh, uh, something, things, really valuable things to write about. So, yeah, I like that notion of grounding, mm-hmm. the way that it, mm-hmm. the multiple meanings of that word seem applicable here. Right. And I'm also reminded when you say that, that I've heard you talk about Mary Oliver as a poet that you feel some sympathies with. Right. I do feel that my approach these days is is similar to hers, where she's not particularly writing about herself, but her her inner landscape is always present, but the subject of the poem is something in her environment, something that she's looking at or relating to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, I think, has, um, that approach has resonated with me, and that's where I find myself right now. Tell us a little bit more about that. I mean, why that would be a, well, is goal the right word or experience that you're after to to not write about yourself? I mean, a lot of poems um, seem like they're so self-referential referential that you almost can't understand them, but... Right. <laughs> and, I, and I hate that. <laughs> so there's I, one part of the answer. <laughs> I'm not going to be that poet, no. Uh-huh. Um, no, I, I want my poems to be understandable. I want them to be about something. I want people, anybody to be able to tell what they are about right away and not feel like they have to figure it out. I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. I think poetry is something that should belong to everybody, not be an esoteric pursuit. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the craft, is there anything that really attracts you? I mean, I know from other conversations that we've had that that's an important part of it for you, that you do a lot of rewriting and pay a lot of attention to what you're putting together. Right. I I do feel that um, what I'm trying for in my poems is a soundscape. I try to structure the poems so that uh, different types of sounds um, repeat and echo each other. So in my poems, there actually are a lot of rhymes. They're not traditional end rhymes necessarily, but there's these sounds that kind of uh, move around through the piece. And I I do want to invoke a kind of singing quality or a musical quality. So that, that, that's very deliberate. Some subjects really, um, I, I want to give them some kind of special acknowledgement and I want to use a sort of elevated language 
which is really a language I would say of praise or something still understandable. But Mm -hmm. um, I have a poem about the bristlecone pines that I think embodies that pretty well for me. So maybe I'll read that one now. Okay. Okay. It's called Bristlecones, Patriarch Grove. They know when the universe will end, dwelling as they do in the sky, where the wind dares them to stand upright and where there is nothing humans want. Unmolested, bedded in shards of dolomite, the undead skeletons shine with lignum vitae, surrounded by offspring whose branches grow thick green pelts, tipped with infant cones of royal blue. And so they continue, half god, half mortal, while worlds below tumble and flotillas of clouds sail past, and chickadees call across the chill air their heartbreak song of the temporal, as old as those who will outlast us. That's beautiful. I can't imagine anyone who's been with those trees not resonating with Mm. what you've captured there. Mm -hmm. And that poem brings to mind another dimension of your work that I've always really appreciated, which is the way that it, relativizes us as human beings without throwing us off the planet altogether. You know what I mean? (laughs) Right. There's a feeling uh, that we're part of and witnessing a, a, a cycle that, and a progression of life that happens regardless of what we are doing or thinking about. Is that lack of human-centric perspective to conscious decision on your part? Too. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Yes, I, I um, have a line in one of my poems, Human, humans are not the center. And I, I do believe that. I think that's a, a sort of an archaic um, thought pattern that we're still uh, inflicting upon ourselves and everything else. Mm-hmm. Uh I think that uh you know in 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 ancient times you know, people believed that the earth was the center of everything and of course now we know that's not true and I think that with time humans will realize that we're not the center of everything either and that um you know the the animals and the uh, uh and non-animate beings on the planet too uh, rocks whatever else is here all have a place and uh you know, perhaps all those beings are just as vitally important as we are. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's possible to see that moving us out of the center as some kind of a di- diminishment. But I think that it's also easy to see how enriched we could all be by that. That's one of the things that I get from reading your poetry is a feeling mm-hmm. of relationship. That's very deep mm-hmm. to everything that is around. Right. Yeah, that's that's really what I'm most interested in, mm-hmm. um, kind of bringing that to life. And particularly in relation to the desert, I mean, if I can do anything to convey a sense of beauty and a sense of truth in that it's not true that there's nothing out here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> No, no, no. Everything is here. (laughs) 
Right. Mm-hmm. Well, the relationships, the sense of relationship and presence that I get from reading your poetry is not just deep and complete in the present. There's also a real feeling that we're, that the past is present and that we're linked somehow. Right, um, right. That's true. I do feel that... Um, the de- one special thing about the desert is that um, so much of the past is still present. And there are so many organisms that are living now that are truly ancient. Um, for example, the creosote bushes that have lived, you know, for over 10,000 years, um, things like that. And the the traces of the past, you know, things that are left behind from uh, species that are now extinct, you know, which kind of brings me to uh, one of my favorite subjects, you know, the ancient camels, which I have a big poem about in this most recent book. Yeah, I was hoping that you would share something with us about the camels, because it's one of my favorite parts of your book. Camels are also not something that I've ever really given very much thought to. So would you mind telling us how you originally got the idea or got captivated by that? Sure. Uh, it really was uh, turned out to be a, a vision quest for me, and it started in the year 2000 uh, when Bill and I uh, made our first trip to the Anza Borrego Desert State Park and drove out to the Fonts Point Overlook. It gives you a spectacular view of the desert badlands. Of course, in the distant past, the, that landscape was very different. It's very lush, grasslands, with lots of water everything else. And uh, there's interpretive panels at the Overlook that tell you all about the animals that used to live out there. And of course, among them were camels, which came as a complete surprise to me. I had no idea that camels originated in North America many millions of years ago, uh, roamed all over this continent, spread from here to every other continent on Earth, except for Antarctica and uh, ultimately died out on this continent. So these animals who we think of as being, you know, Middle Eastern or Asian phenomena are really, you know, uh, North American natives. And I, I really love finding out anything that turns any traditional notion I might have personally had on, on its head. So um, I was really captivated by that bit of ancient history, and I decided to uh, look into it further. And what ended up happening was I uh, pursued that line of research or inquiry and exploration and vision quest, you know, for about 15 years. And and, uh, it took me to a lot of different places all over Southern California. And uh, it was a lot of fun. Now, see, there's so many things that interest me about that story that you just told and one thing that I just want to highlight because it's relevant to the themes of this program generally is that see I've been there I've made the trek out to Fonts Point I read those interpretive panels nothing in me leapt out at the word camel right (laughs) but I just think that's worth noting because one of the things Mm -hmm. that we talk about uh, in this program usually in the context of stories that I'm telling is that though the details, the things that do capture your imagination are incredibly important pieces of information. And we're so bludgeoned with the messages of be productive and go to work or whatever that 
we don't always allow ourselves to investigate the seemingly random, even bizarre (laughs) things that catch our attention. And yet they're a real portal into the world and to our own sense of it. So, Oh yeah, portal's a great word. Um, That's exactly what it was. I mean, it was just this portal into the past, but also into the desert and a way of, um, you know, gaining a deeper understanding about the desert you know, where it's come from and where it's going. Um, So I really owe a lot to the camels. I mean, they took me to all kinds of really cool places. And and, uh, I met a lot of really interesting people. And uh, yeah, it was it was quite a quite a journey. I'm sorry, it's over. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like I wrote the poem. And now it's now it's like I need a new quest. Right, right. uh, Well, something will probably call to you. Yeah, yeah. It, I'm sure it will. And and what you were saying is, is uh, really important, I think, for us to let ourselves be captivated by something. You know, when our attention is caught, you know, by whatever it is to follow that. And I've learned that over my years as a poet, you know, when that little thing goes off in my head, you know, that's, that, you know, hang on to that and keep going. Mm-hmm. So... Right. If you pick up Cynthia's book, you'll see that like the last third of it, right, Mm -hmm. is is a long poem in sections about camels. But I think we're going to get to hear a couple pieces of it. Right. I'll read a couple pieces from this. Um, It's got seven parts in the book, and each is about a different uh, place on the journey. And it does combine physical and non-physical reality. So some things are actually happening in physical reality and some things aren't. So um, I'll read a couple pieces where that's kind of mixed up. And uh, one of them is, uh, this first one is called Pinto Basin here in Joshua Tree National Park. Beside the dry wash, wind in my ears blows me backwards. I make my home in the desert and the ancient camels draw closer. Their breath ripples the sheer fabric of reality. As my eyes adjust to the prodigal light, I can see farther. Scraps of evidence, a lecture here, a book or article there, lead to meeting places, urge me deeper. Small waves lap the shore, ringed by a lip of mud, bruised and torn, where camels come to drink. The basin tells a succession of tales, climbing a rocky hill, Looking east, I picture the ebb and flow, a primeval lake, then a winding river, then creosote flats cut by a wide wash, banks lined with vanished campsites. I sit inside the circle, watching the old ones as they watch me from the safety of their own time. Scattered on the surface, crumbling camel bones mingle with relics of pinto culture, Matates and manos, scrapers and knives, hammerstones and dart points, a meeting of eons. Nothing is certain but the deathless current, where we come from, where we are going. So I'll say just a, a few words about this. Um, you know, camel bones have been discovered in the Pinto Basin. In the 1930s, when Elizabeth and Bill Campbell were doing their archaeological research and they um, found the artifacts that established the Pinto culture 
as a, a truly existing thing in <laughs> ancient Native American life. They did find all those relics and the camel bones mixed up together on the surface of the ground, and there was some intense excitement about whether those things were um, contemporaneous. And it was decided and determined that, uh, no, they weren't. They just happened to be exposed, um, but they weren't from the exact same time. However, there is a petroglyph in the Rodman Mountains at a place called Surprise Tank, um, a petroglyph that David Whitley, the archaeologist, has written about, which looks remarkably like a camel. And uh, for my birthday a few years back, I decided I wanted to go to try to find this petroglyph and see it for myself. And uh, I did get to do that, did see the petroglyph. And uh, personally, I favor believing that there was some overlap between the very last camels in this area and the first people. I think that life is not so cut and dried and boundaries are not that exact. So this is about surprise tank in that petroglyph. Creosote plains strewn with volcanic rock stretch the edge of sight. I scuff the surface and uncover the face of a warrior, an obsidian mask. To the north, a cinder cone, shades of metal and rust, to the south, a deep crack with a sandy bottom, sides piled high with basalt boulders, forming ledges etched with petroglyphs. One ledge evokes ceremony with images of snakes, bighorn sheep, rows of dots, and a lone camelid in a place of honor, a tiny god, a gatekeeper. A body shaped by destiny, set apart, he goes his own way, while the herd goes another. Pollen on wind, sky low and close. The old ones saw the land being made, the volcano spewing lava and lava becoming land. Singing, they struck basalt rocks together. Throw, throw, the center of the earth is flashing. Throw the rock, strike the rocks, the center of the earth, the center of the earth. Strike, strike, flash. In changing light, boulders shift from brown and black to copper. I am learning to respect the boundaries of the unseen. Wow. Just a few words about this one. Um, that section towards the end, throw, throw, the center of the earth is flashing, that is actually a Serrano song, as told by Dorothy Ramon the Serrano elder, in her book, Always Believe, which for me has been the single most important source for deepening my understanding of the people who used to live in this area. So that's an ancient shaman song. And uh, just one other note on that. Um, people have asked me if I really found an obsidian mask. No, not in physical reality. That was a dream vision. So that's part of what I'm doing in this poem is kind of mixing up a dream vision quest with, you know, the actual uh, experience of, of traveling to these different sites and uh, seeing what there was to see there related to the camels.
So, and the sense of time I have is that I've always uh, liked a couple different sayings. One is that time exists so that everything doesn't have to happen at once, you know. But at some level, at some uh, level of reality, everything is happening at once. So, um, I think the past is available to us if we choose to look into it. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to whatever it is that captures your interest next (laughs) and the poems that you write about it. Seriously, (laughs) seriously. Thank you. you. So we're really out of time for today, but I do want people to know where they can buy your books and find your poetry because people, you have to check some of this out. Okay, so um, my books are for sale at Rainbow Stew in Yucca Valley at Raven's Bookshop in 29 Palms, and on Blurb.com. And uh, A Bird Black as the Sun, which is the anthology of Crow and Raven poems, is available on Amazon.com. So that's where to get the books. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, so that's it for me, Catherine Savela, and Myth in the Mojave for this week. If you have questions about today's program or mythology in general, You can find Myth in the Mojave on Facebook or contact me through the Myth in the Mojave website. I'd like to give special thanks to Steve Arbio for his help in getting this program online with Radio Free Joshua Tree. And thank you for listening. Please tune in next week. And in the meantime, happy myth-making and keep the mystery in your life alive. (laughs) 